It's been a tumultuous love affair. There's been some ups and downs. There's been some injuries. And boy, I could talk forever about how when you're in close um, proximity to someone else and there's an actual um, human that is trying to move and manipulate you, how easy the gym seems in comparison where you're just surrounded by a bunch of inanimate objects. But I digress. One, two, three. This last Saturday, we were in Austin, Texas, Caleb and I, and our friend Hunter for the fittest experience. We were invited to come down, shoot a series of podcasts, which we're pretty stoked about and will probably be released before this one is. But because I've been involved in fitness for a long time, going to these competitions, these fitness festivals, feels like a, a family reunion of sorts. And at one point, I was on the stage with two guys that I've known for 15 years. And the first thing that they say is, hey, do you remember when we were at this competition and you lost your temper? Do you remember when you lost your, your mind doing this particular thing? And I think all I did was shake my head. It was like, of course I remember. Of course I remember <laughs> who I have been and the things that I've struggled with. And, and I'd say, man, by the grace of God, I'm thankful to say that today I don't have these episodes of uh, rage or exploding in anger that it embarrassingly were more common when I was a much younger man, except, except for when I'm in a public restroom. I'm embarrassed to say this. But I have zero tolerance. I can, I can go from Bruce Banner to hulking out in a split second when one of these stupid, touchless faucets work too well. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where they have been over-engineered to, to keep you from touching the faucet and they're trying to conserve water? It, like drives me crazy. Do you know what I'm talking about? It drives me crazy. And so I'm in there. First of all, the soap dispenser works too well. So the touchless soap dispenser has given me seven times more soap than I need. And then I can't figure out the Fibonacci sequence to get the water to go for more than three seconds. And it, ah, man, I'm getting worked up right now. Anyways, I share this with you because there's a term for this. There's a term for it, and it's called sub-optimization. It means that something is engineered so well that the goal is negated because the subsystem is controlling everything. Those are a lot of fancy words to say that the sink works so well at keeping you from touching things and conserving water that it actually doesn't help you very well wash your hands. And I, I lead all of that to hinge into the thing that we're talking about, which is that in fitness, uh, suboptimization can happen too. It can happen when anything that we're training for in the gym, which is a subsystem for your life, things like bench, things like a 400-meter time trial, any of these specific metrics become the target for your life. Because if you think about it, the gym wasn't supposed to be that in the first place. The gym wasn't supposed to be the point. 
it was supposed to be this mechanism, this the this subservient system to you having a better life. So I'm Spencer. This is the BPR podcast where we talk about the art of radical health and athlete design. And we call it radical health, one, because that sounds really cool. You dig? It sounds really cool to say that. But when we use the word radical, it means all the way. We're not saying like we just want to be kind of healthy or let me let me move into these areas that I like. It's saying that, hey, if I'm going to be healthy, I got to do all the way. That means that the gym at some point has to stop being the target and it just needs to go back into line with it being something that supports the rest of your life. Now, I think that's a hard pill to swallow because it requires you to be creative. It requires you to think, how might that happen? And if your life is just uh, sleeping, working, and, and trying to do those things as well as possible, it can be really hard to equate what happens in the gym to an improvement in those other areas of your life because it's too broad. It's too complex. There's too much going on. And so it's hard to say, man, how does, how does an improvement in back squat specifically make my life better? It's hard to do that. And I believe that's a great justification for why we need hobbies. The, the theme of this is how to train for the hobby that you love. And that's what we're going to be talking about. But we can't really get into that unless we understand why it's important. And maybe also why it's so hard for us to come up with that. I think one of the reasons that it's hard is that we don't give ourselves enough time to think about what the options are out there. Now, there's some common hobbies, and I bet even if, as I say that word, there's some things that pop into your head, and you know more or less what it is that you like to do. But for some of us, it's going to take uh, a moment, maybe several moments, where we sit and we just think. We think, man, what do I actually want the gym to do for me? And and you'll have to get really specific because if you just say, oh, I want to have better vitality or you know, I want to be active when I'm 80, it's it's still too broad. It's still too vague. And so I think having something specific that you would like to get better at is a great way to connect these things that we're talking about. And you'll have to get creative because if you're not, you're going to be left with things that you see other people doing that are popular that may not necessarily be like a great fit for you. And so I want to give you permission that if you're in the gym and you see a bunch of people training for something in particular, don't just blindly hop into that because you want to be a part of the the group. Evaluate if that's something that's a good fit. And I'll tell you exactly how to do that. There's a guy here in Dallas. His name's Bill Hendricks. He has a book called uh, The Person Called You. He has a whole program called The Giftedness Center here in Dallas, Texas. And the process that he takes people through is to figure out where you actually are gifted. Now, when we use the word gifted, we don't necessarily mean uh, that you're the, you know, the, the world-class expert in these things. It just means that you can look back into your past 
and this may be starting, you know, chronologically with something that happened very recently with you, and then starting to go further and further back to these times where you find yourself doing something that required action, right? It wasn't just you sitting on your butt thinking about things. It required you to do something, and you found that you really enjoyed it. Now, the process that he takes people through, which we've done as well, and it's really enjoyable, it's really fun to get nostalgic, is you start to tell stories. You write these down. You share them with someone. And the person that's on the receiving end of those stories has an easy checklist, and what they're doing is they're listening and they're paying attention to what themes there may be. These themes could include a consistent ability that you had to use. And again, it's not world-class proficiency. It's just something that you found incredibly enjoyable. It could be the environment or the circumstances that you found yourself in. It could be the role. If there were other people, were you in a role of leadership? Were you in the shadows with no recognition at all? And then lastly, what type of satisfaction did it give you? And so before we get into actually how to train for your hobby and how to balance that with the rest of your fitness, I think it's really, really valuable to take some time to get reacquainted with those things that you may have forgotten about. I can only speak for myself, but I can tell you that as I go through this exercise, I found that if the activity required uh, a necessity to deep dive into research about it, if it required me to wear a costume, if it required me to practice something significantly, if it required uh, going into an environment that had some unknown elements to it, and if it was outside, and if it was with a handful of people that I really liked, you could pretty much get me to do anything that had those things involved. And so learning that for yourself can start to be the compass and the GPS coordinates to understanding like maybe some different hobbies that you would find really satisfying. And so if you go through that, and I highly recommend getting the book, I highly recommend you looking at his website. On the other end of that, you'll come up with something that either you've done in the past, or you're really curious about. We won't uh, assume that as a kid, you know, you were able to do uh, ultra running or break dancing or, you know, some of these things that as a kid, like maybe just weren't even accessible to you. So some of those ingredients from your past doesn't demand that like, hey, you liked petting horses as a kid, so you need to go pet horses. It could just be like, hey, you love animals. You love being outside. You love something that has like a kinesthetic awareness. So think general versus specific. And once you get that hobby, what we have found, and, and the whole reason we're doing this video is because you get a lot of questions about how to train for fill in the blank. And what I think that question really is alluding to is not what are the specific sport requirements so that I can be world dominating at this thing, but it's more specifically how do I balance the enjoyment of this activity and not let my health be compromised. And so I want to set the, the stage that as we get into the specifics, we're not talking about you becoming a specialist. 
we're not even assuming that you're really that good at this thing that you're doing. And we're also assuming that your whole life isn't going to come to a halt so you can squeeze out every ounce of potential that you have. Now, I think for each of us that finds something that is really satisfying, that thought goes through our head. And I got some other stories with that as well. But we're going to put some constraints on it. We're going to say that we want to do this in a way that we can enjoy the activity for a long, long time in that we don't get so good at the activity that we have to justify why we're fat but really good at this thing that we're doing. You with me? So as we get into this, I think there's four things that you have to determine. Number one, and this is just a part of being a a busy adult, is you have to determine the logistics. If you are going to pursue a ultra marathon, um, where are you going to run? When are you going to run? If you're going to do breakdancing, like, where's the cardboard? You know what I'm saying? Like, you got to work out some of the boring things that make it um, very manageable for you to be consistent with this. If there's an activity that is maybe leading up to something that's more of a, an adventure or, or something that's off the beaten path, then you'll have to think through what are, the, what are the different skills or what are the different components that I will need to logistically be consistent with in order to do that. And an easy example is if you're going to go climb Denali, well, yeah, you're not going to have access to cold weather or an actual mountain, but you can logistically think about things like a pack, things like the other gear that you'll have to have, the, the certain essence of what that activity is that you can recreate here. So once we've determined the logistics, determining the frequency is important. And that just means that on a week end and week out basis, What do you feel like is a conservative amount of time to commit to this? Now, one caveat there, let's say that because this is just hypothetical, you're going to give yourself plenty of time. That means that you're not picking something that's going to become a hobby that you have to perform in in a few short weeks. That means that if something that you're training for or something that you're going to start incorporating into your life doesn't need to have this really aggressive timetable. And if that's true, then we want to make sure that we're balancing that new activity um, probably more conservatively than we need to with the time that we're already in the gym. Some of that will be a trial and error, and I'll give you some examples of that in a minute. But you'll want to make sure that you're doing the activity enough that the component of skill is fresh enough that every time you do it, you don't forget all the things that you learned or you got better at. And then you want to make sure you don't do it too much where it starts to to become uh, almost like the gym was once upon a time, that that subsystem starts to, to be the thing that controls the rest of your life. Again, we're not looking to be professionals here. And so we're going to have to always be thinking about what the balance is between the two. Once we have the logistics and the frequency, we want to look at the duration. And I would say the duration of this experiment. Say there's something like skateboarding. Say there's something like a backcountry ski trip. Say there's, there's something like fencing. Instead of just saying, man, I want to be great at skateboarding. I want to be great at backcountry skiing. I think that it would be helpful to have some specific skill, some specific 
competition, some specific Masogi, and Masogi we use the term as like a competition that nobody knows about. It's something that that's aggressive, that's something that has a, a potential fail rate, but it's not an official race per se that you have to sign up for. Having that in place can just reduce this new thing that you have down to a few ways that you can determine that you have some some progress or that you've you've somehow increased the quality of your life by participating in this hobby. And because we're not given a specific example, hey, sky's a limit there. If you love golf, that could be, man, I'm going to play at this course this amount of time for this duration leading up to this really cool trip where we're going to go out to this amazing golf course and just play our faces off for a whole weekend. Now, those three, I, I got to say, are pretty straightforward. I mean, that that would be the process you would go through, and it's it's more or less common sense for any activity that you want to start, um, much less a hobby. But this next part is, is how we'll start to transition from just the common sense variables to the actual training. And I want you to know that everything I'm about to say is a little contradictory. It means it's not what I have seen to be very prevalent in the world of strength conditioning. But the reason that I'm going to recommend this is one, my own personal experience. And two, because this, just like training in the gym, is a subsystem to your life. So if we said that we wanted to be the world's best grappler, then what I'm about to say would look a lot different. If we said that I'm willing to compromise my role as a husband and a father and the time that I spend in the gym, if I said I actually want to be a world-class triathlete, then what I'm about to tell you is different. But we are assuming that this is in balance with the rest of your life. So having said that, we want to determine how we will compensate for the activity that is now our hobby. When we think about this activity that you're doing, there's going to be a, a certain skill that's involved. If we broke that skill down, there's going to be certain poses and positions that your body has to go through. There's only a few things I can think of where there isn't a predisposition to certain poses and positions. If there wasn't a predisposition, then there wouldn't be anything specific that you were practicing. Think about that for a sec. The position in golf, you know what that looks like. The poses that you're shifting between, we know what that looks like. It's a certain frequency and repetition of that and the consistency of that that makes you good at golf. You could say that for almost everything that you wanted to pursue. If that's true, and it is, it means that there's going to be some things that are in overabundance in the ways that your body moves, and then there's going to be some things that if we're just talking about the hobby are out of balance. Your goal from a movement standpoint is to compensate for the things that you're already getting the box checked for in terms of the way that your body moves. Secondly, I think it helps to look at the energy system of the hobby. 
Now, when we say energy system, it's just the type of engines that our body has to use and create ATP. We're not going to get too dorky, but there's things that are really short that is going to be a limitation of how strong you are. There's going to be things that are really long that are a limitation of how well you can use oxygen and what your stamina looks like. And there's something in the middle where the limitation is probably going to be how you can exchange gas. It's going to be um, not a, a stamina issue, but it's going to be some limitation of your ability to, to use both of those things in concert. And so we can look at this hobby that you have and we can say, man, as simple as what's this typically going to take me? How long? How hard is this? What are the repeated efforts that I'm required to do? And you can look at that from a, a 60,000 foot view and say, hey, what's the, what's the essence of this thing that I'm now doing multiple times a week? From there, you'll want to determine what you're doing a lot of already. And then your training, and this is the contrarian point of view, is going to be things that complement that. It's not going to be specializing in that thing. Why is that? Because you're already doing it. Now, I'll give you some examples. In the, in the world of strength conditioning, for a long, long time, and I still think that it's a, it's a knee-jerk tendency, it's to make cross-training look like the activity. And so let's use, let's use fencing for an example. What I'm recommending is that everything that you do outside of your fencing classes or whatever it's called, never done fencing, is to complement the things you're doing in there. So if you're in a position of fencing, I can only assume that you're always going to lead with one leg. You're always going to have the sword in the same hand. Saber? Sword? Rapier? I don't know. All I know is that you're not a Nigo Montoya, so you're not going to be switching arms. You're not going to be switching legs. You're going to stay in that same pose and position the entire time. I looked it up, and I also know that for a match, it's three minutes long, up to three rounds with a minute rest in between. And so you know that based on your dominant arm and leg, based on the plane of motion that you're moving, and based on the duration of effort and how physically challenging that is, that you'll have that covered really well based on the duration and the frequency that you've done this activity. From there, you're going to insulate and support those movements and that time domain with things that would complement it. We'll do some strength training on the non-dominant side. We'll make sure that there isn't some imbalance or huge compensation on the side that we're going. We'll train some complementary movements to that position and plane of travel. We'll probably do a lot of strength training that's a significantly shorter in duration than what the matches would be. And we'll probably do a lot of aerobic training that would help recover and help create this really broad base so you couldn't just do one match, but you could do 10 matches and feel like you have the ability to sustain a high effort. That's what I would recommend. 
what typically happens is that you'll see somebody like in the gym put a band around their waist and like have a PVC pipe in their hand. And, you know, they're like mimicking the, the stuff they would do in class. And then you'll see, uh, you know, them on the ski interval, you know, like with one arm <laughs> doing, doing like three rounds. And it's like the funniest thing on earth. One, I don't think it works very well. That's what we would call like direct conditioning. And that would only be necessary if like you were trying to eke out every bit of performance that you possibly could, which is to say that you're okay with everything else in your life um, starting to come down. And so I think the, the, the short answer is we want an indirect support. We want things that complement. We want things that can help us compensate for the extra time and volume that we're spending with this hobby. Now, all that is really just an excuse for me to finally get to talk about jujitsu. That's right. Jujitsu is a mistress that I fell in love with almost eight years ago. It's been a tumultuous love affair. There's been some ups and downs. There's been some injuries. And boy, I could talk forever about how when you're in close um, proximity to someone else and there's an actual um, human that is trying to move and manipulate you, how easy the gym seems in comparison where you're just surrounded by a bunch of inanimate objects. But I digress. I think that um, the question I get asked the most when somebody hears that I also am an enthusiast of BJJ is how do you balance these two things? How do you go through this process that, that I just described, but specifically for the gentle art, which is a funny name because it doesn't seem like there's anything gentle about jujitsu. And so all of these things I'm talking about I want to give you very specific examples. For jiu-jitsu, the first thing that I would recommend is where are you going to do it? For your busy life, what's going to be the thing that you can pencil into your schedule that you know it's just like waking up and having your quiet time? It's just like dinner with your family. For me, I've experimented with doing it in the morning. Some great friends uh, have a a class at 6 a.m. in Deep Ellum, that was really hard for me to sustain for a number of reasons of what I'm doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Where I found my stride is at a 11 or 12 o'clock class. For me, from a frequency standpoint, I've experimented with once or twice a week, and every time I did only once or twice a week, I would forget almost everything that I was learning the time before. I've also gone as frequent as five or six days. And for the things that we're describing about how to balance and compensate these two and how not to turn jujitsu into the target, but allow it to be a subsystem of a healthy life, I found that that was too much. It was really hard on my joints. And so a great frequency for me, and again, I'm not advocating that this has to be for you, but it's three. I do one private because I'm a big advocate of customization. Jiu-Jitsu is such a, a broad skill set that you'll have to figure out the poses and positions that work for you. And I can say that in that private, it's primarily focusing on skill. The other two times that I train, they're primarily 
energy system based. That means that there's not a whole lot of slow, dedicated skill practice. There's a little bit of that, but the majority of it is using this skill under high duress. So performing five-minute rounds typically with one minute in between. The duration I've set is to try to stick to that schedule in one year and see like a good Boy Scout if I could advance my merit badges and earn the next rank. And so that's an example of those first three things, determining the logistics, determining the frequency, and determining the duration of this experiment that you want to do and, and what the stakes are for that. And now as we finish, let's talk about the compensation. First thing that we would want to determine is what's the pose or position that you predominantly find yourself in? I can sum it up by giving a, a visual of what a monkey would look like if it wrapped his arms around a tree. The shoulders are protracted forward. Your spine is in a flexed position. Your hips are also flexed. And quite often you find yourself in that, that kind of uh, condensed position. Now, obviously, there's a stand-up portion. Obviously, you'll need to extend joints. But that's more or less where you'll find yourself. There's a lot of pulling if you have geese. There's a lot of grip work. Interestingly enough, though, as you find yourself in a bottom position and you're framing, there's a lot of pushing support, potentially isometrically, that you find yourself in. Here's a little anecdote. There's a specialty movement in a horizontal press, it's called a JM press. It's basically a way to test how strong your elbows are in a compound joint movement like a bench press. When I started jujitsu, after about a year and a half, my JM press, without ever having done the JM press, went up by 100 pounds. That's a true story. And it's because for a year, all I did was just hold myself in this position as badasses were on top of me. Turns out you can get a lot stronger doing some of that. So all that to say is there's an overabundance of certain poses and positions in jiu-jitsu. From a energy system standpoint, it's very rare that you'll have some no-holds-barred shark tank scenario where you're going nonstop for an hour plus. We see examples of this on YouTube of these, you know, like basically like fights to the death. But for us commoners and dads with kids that are just doing this for fun, it typically looks like what I described about five minutes long with a minute in between. And so you know what the pose looks like and you know what the energy system requirements look like. When you first start, the time that you'll spend rolling will feel very exhausting. And that's because you're not very good at it. Dan John, one of the guys I, I hold in high regard from a strength conditioning standpoint, he said, if you want to find the best way to condition yourself, do something that's really inefficient. Don't be good at a burpee. Be terrible at a burpee. The reason that jujitsu feels like a great form of fitness when you first start is because you're terrible at it. And so you're incredibly inefficient. You don't know what you're doing. And so you'll finish a role, so to speak, and be like, man, this is a great form of fitness. Just pay attention that as your skill improves, which it should, the energy requirements of this significantly decrease. And so we can't use jujitsu 
as a form of fitness. We can just look at it as a, a skill in certain positions that are absolutely requiring energy, but it's not something that I need to supplement with more of. The best way that I found to sustain a healthy jujitsu practice is to look at those positions and do a lot of things from a torso standpoint that pull your shoulders back, a lot of positions that uh, externally rotate your arms and pull them back in line with a very neutral and rigid core, a lot of things where we're trying to get hip extension versus hold in a hip flexed position. And there's a lot of uh, merit to be doing single arm and single leg movements because that is what you're spending so much time doing on the mats. And so for training, I do zero five minute on, one minute off intervals in the gym. Why do I do zero? Because I'm already doing it twice a week. I don't need any more acid baths in my week. I'm already getting it. Now there's some variance from week to week where, you know, you could finish a session and say, man, that was way harder than this last one. But by and large, I know that that box is being checked. Two to three days a week, I do resistance training and they are opposing movement patterns to the things that I'm doing in group class. That means I'm not doing a lot of horizontal pulls. I'm doing a lot of vertical pull-ups. I'm not doing a lot of horizontal pushing. I'm doing a lot of vertical pushing because I'm already doing a lot of the other types in class. And so on and so forth with single leg movements, hip extension, lots of core and back work to try to open up and improve my posture. And if my focus is on the hobby of jujitsu, that's plenty. On the other end of the spectrum, I always am asked, well, what type of energy system work should I do? And my answer is it's lots of aerobic work. It's lots of longer, slower recovery type aerobic work so that your ability to sustain an activity increases. And then as we couple these things of strength training, because you can always improve that, and then your ability to endure, you put those together, jujitsu meets nicely right in the middle. Now, if you're wanting to compete, if you're wanting to start to, to bias and specialize even more, then yeah, it makes sense that we would go from indirect means of conditioning to potentially more direct means, but that's not really what we're talking about. Before we close, there is one secret method that I want to share with you. And I've only heard a handful of people talk about this, and they're all a lot smarter than me. But I think the the secret method, especially for jujitsu, is to combine alactic training. That means where you're doing something that's fast twitch but you do it over and over and over again with repeated intervals that allow you to fully recover. When you think about jiu-jitsu, it's not a five-minute sprint. It is these little bursts of power and then times for your battery to recover. That is what jiu-jitsu is when you start to get better at the forms and poses and positions. There's 
moments of power followed by much longer bouts of improving position that aren't requiring 100% of your, your muscle contraction. This term for this is what we would call A and A, alactic plus aerobic. And a session would look like this. You pick some movement. Let's say it's kettlebell swings and a push-up. Shout out to Derek. And for an interval of three minutes, you'll do 10, 15 swings, followed by 10, 15 push-ups, not at a slow, methodical pace, but you'll try to replicate the burst and the explosion that you need to have in a tough round of rolling. After those 10 to 15, you'll rest. You'll rest where it feels like you're fully recovered. What does that mean? It means that you could talk in full sentences. If you're watching your heart rate, it means that it's somewhere between 122 and not above 162. It means that the form when you do the next set is exactly like it was before. It means the speed is exactly like it was before. And instead of seeing how quickly you can get into an acid bath or doing some interval that intentionally puts you into this lactate threshold, you're staying way below that and you're seeing how long you can increase these intervals. Now to start, you may feel this sensation of lactate happen pretty quickly. As soon as you feel that, you're done. But the adaptation is not trying to get into that glycolysis faster. The adaptation is to try to stay away from it as long as you can. So imagine hypothetically that you start with something like four or five rounds of this really simple sequence, 10 to 15 swings, 10 to 15 push-ups, done at a very, very fast and hard effort. That means you're extending the hips quick, but keeping the bell right at eye level. It means you're coming off the ground as quickly as you can for a push-up, and you're repeating that. Imagine you started, and the best you could do was five intervals, five intervals of three minutes. Now imagine if you progress that over time, and you went from five intervals to 30 intervals. Now it doesn't mean that you're just riding the bike, doing aerobic work. It means that you've gotten good at exploding and recovering for a long, long time. That, my friends, is your secret weapon to getting good at jujitsu. As we close, I hope you're inspired to get a hobby. I get it. The gym's so cool. There's so many cool things to do. In the ways that we've been exposed to different programs and methodologies, you could spend a lifetime just getting good at things in the gym. But at some point, you have to ask yourself a question. It's like, hey, have I gotten so good at conserving water and not getting somebody to touch the faucet that I'm actually not very good at washing this person's hand. <laughs> you get what I'm saying. Make sure the gym stays the subsystem of a great life. And in order to do that, you probably need to find a hobby. Once you find this hobby, keep that in check. Realize that that's still just a subsystem that connects to the gym that connects to this overall thing called having a good life. I'm Spencer. Thanks for listening.